I'm Kelly and I'm everything design with a flair for finance. Hi, I'm Danielle and I'm everything finance with a flair for design. Welcome to Nourish Your Worth, a podcast on a mission to promote financial literacy and self-care. We seek to help free people from financial fear and empower them to live their lives with more confidence and purpose. Welcome. This is a safe space to grow. Let's get to nourishing your worth. Welcome, welcome to Nourish Your Worth. Recently, Danielle and I were honored with an award for our allyship from the Investment News Annual Women to Watch Awards. It was such an exciting experience for us that we wanted to spread that allyship love and bring on our first guest, Ethan Devitt. With more than two decades of financial industry experience and an entrepreneurial spirit, Ethan Devitt currently brings her talent and passion to Moneta Group as its first female chief investment officer. She also acts as an independent advisor to four UK public pension funds and is a member of the Investment Committee of Saul, the Investment Committee of MDRC, and the Investment Committee of the Endowment of Trinity College Dublin. She is a lawyer has her MBA and MSc in Applied Neuroscience, speaks German and French fluently, and has run 38 marathons. Very impressive. In addition, also hosts and produced the 50 Face podcast, which showcased the diversity and richness of the investment world through showcasing inspiring investors and their stories. And this is where I first met Ethan during the pandemic, while in the midst of my radical sabbatical, was shifting into the next chapter of my career. When Ethan reached out to have me as a guest on her podcast, she was producing the newly launched show back at her home, hunkered down with her family in Ireland. It was kismet since at the time I was reflecting on my why and how my grandfather, Harry O'Hare, who was born in Cork, had strongly shaped my money mindset. I attribute our conversation as an integral part of where I am today. Ethan, I thank you for being a friend, an ally, and a mentor at a point in my life when I needed it the most. I really feel like my ancestors connected us, and for that, I'll forever be grateful. Thank you for giving so many of our peers and individuals from other industries a platform to share their amazing stories. And now it's your turn. Let's hear your story, Ethan. Great. Well, I really don't know where I should begin, but Danielle described it so well there. Um, my journey into wealth management was quite a circuitous one, and it definitely was not where I expected I would end. Um, I'm not sure I even have ended here, but certainly um, on this journey. I started out um, loving history and law and writing and argument and analysis, and that was very much what uh, drove me through university. I was a strong student, I'd say, in, in writing and those areas. And I really loved just the depth that we could go into in studying law in, in Trinity. I will admit I had very little experience of the economic um, field arena. I really hadn't been introduced to it. We did tend to be somewhat more siloed in our legal education than, uh, than in other areas. We all presumed we would go into either a solicitor or a barrister role. But my first encounter with the world of finance was as a corporate lawyer, which I started in New York at the tender age of 21 in the mid-90s. And that really was just a complete, I'd say, a, even a culture shock. I mean, I'd come from studying in Trinity College, Dublin, to now moving to um, to New York City, top of the magic circle firm, to dealing with mostly Ivy League 
undergraduates as my peers and really didn't understand the world of, of corporate um, doings and uh, and corporate maneuvers, but very quickly learned my role as a lawyer. I started becoming fascinated by finance, wanted to demystify it for myself. I seized the opportunity to go to Hong Kong with that firm um, around 97, and that gave me great exposure to the um, global economic arena, uh, working in Indonesia, Singapore, Hong Kong. So when I moved to Hong Kong, I really began to be immersed in corporate deals. And that was when I decided I wanted to make the leap to the financial side. I did that via an MBA, which I was delighted to be accepted to, but it wasn't actually that easy to get into an MBA program as a lawyer. They presumed that you were pigeonholed, that you didn't have the um, the financial skills. So I, But I did persist, um, was accepted to a one-year MBA program. Love that for the, the wide perspective it gave me. Moved through then Goldman Sachs, um, investment banking, then into investment consulting. Had my own firm for a period when I consulted with pension funds. And then after that, I um, I became a CIO. I was very keen to move beyond being a consultant to into being a CIO. I wanted to not just provide the, the kind of the four by four matrix and the SWOT analysis. I wanted to really um, become the trigger puller. As a CIO, I wasn't always the um, the trigger puller. Obviously, you work with the board and other counterparties, but it definitely gave me the the, the sense that we get when we are owners of capital, which is you know, the, the visceral sense you get of the ups and downs and you living by investment decisions, living by your wits in that sense. And I really did feel that that was um, that for, to me was was the full circle where I needed to come. And ever since that, which is about, you know, I left that position about three years ago now, ever since then, I have believed that an ownership mentality is absolutely key to providing financial advice. Then I suppose the next step was the move to private wealth and to work with individuals. And for me, that was a very, a very big challenge um, and a challenge I was very keen to take on. I saw this as being the most dynamic area of finance for some time. I could see the massive growth that was occurring in this area. I'd also been had a sense that this was an area that by institutional investment advisors who are used to getting transparency, low fees, great access. I did feel that there was a little bit of a double standard in place for um, high net worth investors and institutions. And I felt that having started on the institutional side, I could kind of close the gap. You know, it's interesting, even we uh, Kelly and I come from the institutional management world, and we definitely shifted on the high net worth world. And we believe that levering that institutional knowledge and expertise and giving the same level of service to high net worth individuals is incredibly important. And I'm so impressed by your career and to be able to be the CIO, um, the firm's first CIO as a woman, where our industry does not have a lot of diversity, speaks volumes on uh, your talent um, and your drive. So I really applaud you for that. That's extremely kind. Um, a kind thing to say. I, I do think you're absolutely right. We don't have enough women, which is why I try to cover them as much as possible. Podcast. So how did how did your career take a turn, and what caused you to start the podcast? The, the podcast, the podcast came from two two reasons. One is I'd been doing podcasts through my work anyway. I was covering investment podcasts. I found one of the key reasons I started podcasts is I don't take the sound of my own voice. I think that is something that plagues even the most successful people in our industry, a tendency to not like to hear how they sound. I kind of got over that reasonably early. I used to do a lot of media with my, when I had my own firm. So 
I found I liked the medium. I, I liked the audio medium. It, it kind of was something I was quite comfortable listening to. And also I just became, I found I had this relentless curiosity about what made people tick, um, what motivated them, about ideas. I wanted to flesh out ideas. I like to court controversial points of view. So I really enjoy doing podcasts. And then the second part of it was the experience I've had, the people I've had the privilege of working with over the years, particularly in the Chicago public arena. So many diverse individuals who were really making tremendous change in the area they were working in and were perhaps not being recognized or not getting amplified. And I felt that these were some stories I wanted to tell. I was figuring out the best way to do it, whether I should do it via my, my firm, whether I should do it via somebody else's podcast. And then since it was COVID, I had my own equipment. I knew I could do it. I knew the methodology of editing and recording, et cetera. I just said, I'm just going to start this. And it was Angela Miller-May, who was the CIO at Chicago Teachers at the time, who was my inspiration. She ended up being number three of my podcast series I called it 50 Faces because I wanted to commit to doing 50. And now here we are three years later with uh, close to 200 names. Wow, that's incredible. It's 200. I can't even imagine. This is, I think, our our eighth episode Ninth. or something like that. <laughs> Ninth. Thank you. Um, on that note, can you talk about some higher low points in your career or maybe your podcast? Well, I wouldn't think there have been any low points in the podcast. I, I find this has become something that is bigger than me now. It drives me. I am endlessly fascinated by the people I speak with. It never feels like work. Even the editing piece, which, as you know, can sometimes uh, take, take some time. I tend to have sort of got that quite um, done quite quickly. I suppose the challenge of the podcast is always distribution is always there's, there's a lot of competition. It's try like you know having your book on the shelf. Let's say who's going to listen listen to that you know that CD mm -hmm. you just made. Who's going to listen to that song? Who's got there's so much competition for people's ears right now that always um, penetration is always the challenge that I, I I probably need to spend more time on. But I actually am so happy on the creation side that I don't spend enough time on that. Um, but thankfully I have people around me to help me with that. So that I'd say I, it's really hard to say that any low points there. I'd say when it comes to my career, they've definitely been been low points. There have been times when I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, that started out um, in my first role in investment banking. I entered a role of media communications, technology, banking at a time just after it was cresting. So we didn't have deals to do. We had plenty of deals falling apart and we had lots of pitches to do, but not a lot of traction with them. So it was kind of coming down from the peak. And I saw a lot of people I worked with leaving the firm I saw a lot of um, just a lot of great talent being wasted. And that, I'd say, was quite a, a demoralizing time. I've been in other roles, similarly, where there's been great excitement behind maybe starting a platform and there was no traction or impetus or energy to make it work. And that's been very disappointing as well, because I, I tend to be a person who embraces change, loves change, tries to push change through as quickly as possible. And what I find is that I've learned that not everybody is as keen on that pace of change. And sometimes I've had to then make the decision that that isn't the right fit because I'm not maybe in, in a place where the change is happening at a pace that I'm comfortable with, but equally maybe my desire for change is not compatible with, with the institutions. So I've seen that happen. And that just generally means I have to you know, find another role. So that has been a setback, I'd say, um, because it is kind of feels like a false start. You put a lot of goodwill into a role and then you have to start all over again. But I will say that is just the nature of our roles in finance. There will be 
fits that don't that seem right that are not ultimately right there will be cultures that you think you work with and then you ultimately don't and I do believe I've always prioritized learning and personal growth at, from the very beginning of my career so you know pursuing that sometimes has a price that has a cost it means you maybe are not as stable in certain places as uh, as other people but I, I believe it pays off in terms of reward so it's it never something that I would regret but um but it, it certainly means that it hasn't necessarily been a straight line trajectory at all well, thank you so much for being so honest and humble and sharing some of your failures. Uh, Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, uh, shared a story about her father where he would sit at the breakfast table. How, how are you going to fail today? Right. Where our failures ultimately kind of lead us to uh, pushing ourselves and becoming the best versions of ourselves. And I know you mentioned, Ethan, earlier that Angela was a mentor uh, to you with a podcast. But can you mention anyone else in your life? that has had a meaningful impact during your life, either professionally or personally? I'd say one of my first bosses in Hong Kong, who was uh, Jeff Wood, um, was one of the partners in Hong Kong. I was a lawyer. I went out there in my early 20s. I've always really respected people who work extremely hard. I, I just find that that gives me motivation and energy. And he was passionate about his work. He worked all over Asia. He was hopping on planes morning and night. And what I loved about him was the industriousness he brought to everything. And he was very frank in terms of his feedback. He would tell me, well, you did a really bad job of that. Or that was a great due diligence memo you wrote. But I felt with him as a boss, I always knew where I stood. I felt there was no drama that would carry over to the next morning. You had a fresh start. And I just felt that that kind of robust feedback really made me better. So I'd say he was a, a real inspiration at the, at the beginning. Um, he wasn't for everyone. That kind of blunt feedback is not for everyone. But I really value that because I, I actually have found in my career what I've most been lacking. And it, can, it gets even worse the more senior you get. Robust, honest feedback with that's intended in the right way, intended to make you a better investor, a, be, a, be, a better professional. So that was definitely very inspiring. I would say that the people on my podcast, I am learning from every day. And I've now, as I said, there are over 200 of them. It's impossible to highlight one, <laughs> but every single one, what I've learned from the podcast is the importance of listening, that we should listen so much more than we than we we talk. Um, somebody, another, Ali um, Shakir Khalil was one of my guests on the Pride series. And he was a classic student. And he said that, you know, we are given two ears and one mouth. We should use them in that proportion. And I thought, you know, such wisdom to coming from such a, a young professional. But he was, I listened, I took took that to heart because what I've discovered is that listening through podcasts has been such a rewarding thing for me. And not only has it been rewarding for me, it has been the key, I think, to extracting these fascinating stories from people in a short space of time. 30, 40 minutes is all we need to cover a lot of material because I'm only talking 10% of the time. You're giving lots of amazing uh, sound bites here, lots of amazing advice. And, you know, whether it's recognizing timing, openness to change, prioritizing learning and personal growth, um, and the importance of of listening, uh, what would you say if you had, looking back, uh, if you have any motto or um, <clears throat> mantra, if you will, that you live by, your personal mantra? Well, I just shared this with my team recently. We had an offsite. And we did that corny exercise of going around and talking about our favorite movie and why. <laughs> and I started to get the ball rolling. And my favorite movie of all time was Dead Poets Society. Because I remember when the Robin Williams character stood on, well, he stood on the table. But before he stood on the table, he spoke to the boys at the school and he said, carpe diem, 
And it wasn't so much the carpe diem that I took with me. It was the exhortation to make your lives extraordinary. And I have never forgotten that. I listened to it in my teens and I've never forgotten that that exhortation to make your life extraordinary. And that's what I've tried to do. So when I take on a lot and I take on challenges and I chop and change, and it seems like I do a lot, it's only because I'm trying to live up that, <laughs> live up to that. I'd say that there are there are many others that I, I've, that because I run marathons, I, I actually should correct your introduction. I've now done 50 because I did 12 in 22, just did 12 this wow. year because I wanted to get to that critical 50 number. That was my goal. Yeah. But one of the, I've looked at some great, um, you know, marathon signs along over the years, um, you know, worst parade ever or other kind of funny, uh, funny <laughs> things along the side. But, but one I remember is always um, dig deeper. And there's one, there's this one, so I've just seen, remember seeing that sign around mile 21 and that exhortation to dig deeper, I think is, um, is something I always advise people to do because we always can dig deeper. We can always try harder. It's never just to get by. We, we always have more in us. And I think it's just reminding ourselves that we do and just enforcing ourselves to, to do that. That is something that I try to do um, and remember every day. Well, even I, I continue to get goosebumps over here because you're so inspirational and I'm going to bite. I'm going to tell you that my favorite movie of all time is Life is Beautiful. And I was very angry at one of my best friends who took me to a movie with subtitles because I wanted to be thoroughly entertained and I didn't want to have to read. But that movie just uh, was so impactful. And if you haven't seen it, please go see it and be ready to read. But essentially, it is, it's about parenting it's about mentoring and it's about making the best out of such a horrible situation, being a parent and looking back on how he raised his child. And so even, you know, looking back on your younger self, do you have any advice uh, for your younger self? It would definitely be probably not to take feedback so seriously. I do remember one of my first ever reviews I had as a young lawyer I ended up in tears and it was actually in a restaurant. Uh, Takeaway from that be do never, never receive or deliver a review in a restaurant. <laughs> but equally, why was I in tears? Because I was getting feedback that was supposed to make me better. Um, I just couldn't believe that I was being told this. And I just feel like that was just the wrong mindset to have. Now I would cherish that kind of feedback because I would, I think, understand the spirit so I think that that's probably the, um, I actually would probably finish that there in terms of that would, um, the ability to get feedback, not take myself so seriously, um, but equally believe in myself, um, which I probably always did. And I laugh because I asked this question in my podcast too. And most people are very honest. They say, I probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Um, <laughs> so that's actually, I probably agree with that. I was probably definitely one of these young people. I could have given myself all the advice in the world. I didn't need it then. <laughs> And I didn't think I did, but maybe it's that kind of uh, young person's confidence that uh, that is uh, is why you take risks. I love that. Um, and you know, on your show, you interview people that are inspirational within the finance world. So, what inspires you about finance? I just love it. I love the fact that it is always changing, always new, always inspiring. What I love in life is being stimulated, um, being pushed and driven out of my comfort zone. And I never know all the answers in finance. There's, We never know where the next geopolitical surprise is coming from. And we never know where the next asset class is coming from. I'm learning so much about human behavior from the likes of the FTX debacle or mm -hmm. from 
how we behave on investment committees and how governance failures have um, have come about. I tend to sort of step back from the weeds as much as possible. And I think we do this naturally in our career as we're getting more senior to look at the, what is really going on here. Let's forget about the jargon. Let's step back and say, well, who's being motivated by what? What's driving this decision? What's driving this, this risk aversion? And that is, is where I derive a lot of um, stimulation right now. I've also been incredibly impressed by the financial planners that I work with now at Manetta. I have been so impressed by how they get a client to come to ease, the relationship they build, the attention, the full attention and engagement that they give to their clients. I will say that I've been in a, a working in, in settings where people didn't give me their full attention. They were checking their phone. They were kind of half listening. And then when I got to Manetta and saw the way my financial advisors worked with me as CIO, and then in turn saw how they worked with their clients, I just learned so much from that in terms of what it takes to put people at ease. And in terms of what I think is key now, um, when I see um, high net worth clients, uh, to me, it's all about knowledge and control giving them enough knowledge that they feel they're in control. And because I do think that sense of loss of control can be so paralyzing and so upsetting and can perhaps cause the wrong actions. So I think in my own life, the sense of control, not control freak type behavior, but just enough <laughs> control to feel that you're you're not spinning <laughs> out of control is um, to me that that's key. And, and we love that as an advisor um, who got then got my CFP, I believe that a CFP is even a level above an advisor and the CFP community. And, you know, I participated in a program at Wharton where personal finance is behavioral driven. And there's a lot of education and communication within my community on listening. And I love that statement that you said earlier about you have two ears and one mouth. And, you know, I have a sticky note every time I sit in front of a client to be sure to listen in. And, you know, that's why, you know, Kelly and I, we put together this, um, not only this podcast, but a financial literacy book where it, it pairs the, you know, nourishing your worth, which is your net worth and in trying to have control of your finances and have control of your emotions as you're making those spending decisions, but also nourish your worth as an individual. Because since all these decisions are driven by our behavior and often our money mindset is set at the age of seven, which I've said that many times, those have to work in parallel. So Ethan, what are some ways that you nourish your worth, either professionally or personally? It's a great question. I'd say for me, exercise is key. I try to squeeze in something always an hour in the morning when my kids are not awake, because that is that uh, that is absolutely um, that that I, I don't want to road time with them. I spend my work spends enough. I spend enough time away from them with work. So I try to do it between five and six or six thirty in the morning. That is is key to my my well being. I think it's key to to dealing with anxiety, to dealing with stress, and just a sense of, of, of well-being. And um, I also, one thing I've become very passionate about in recent years is languages. Um, I've always, you mentioned French and German, always learned languages through school, but now I only watch Netflix or Prime in French right now as my current, uh, the current oh. language I'm working on. But I, I just get so much fulfillment and passion through thinking in a different language, learning the idioms that way. That's just a kind of a, a side thing, nothing to do with work. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, as Danielle touched on, we put together a book that kind of combines uh, finance and behavior and a bit of self-care, and it's called Financial Wellness. And so much of what you're talking about goes into that. It's finance is, is so human and so behavior-driven, and part of the whole picture is is really your wellness and your mental health. 
Um, but what what when you hear the term financial wellness, what does that mean to you? When it comes to financial wellness, I'd like to quote a good friend of mine, Brian Portnoy, who speaks about the concept of funded contentment. I haven't found a better way to think about the ultimate end goal of financial planning. I'll say for me, I'm going to go back to the concept of control. I think it is key to feel you're in control of your, your, your debt, or your investments, your destiny, and feel that you're in control of living within your means. I also think having a trusted advisor to speak to is critical. Um, just to feel that you're you're not missing something on the knowledge stakes. So knowledge, control, and then building towards Brian's concepts of funded contentment. Well, again, thank you so much, Ethan, for joining us. It's been a pleasure knowing you. Um, and I look forward to continuing our friendship and our allyship. Absolutely. Thank you so much. What a truly inspirational story for women in the workplace. Ethan breaks down barriers, looking after her family and herself as she continues to climb the corporate ladder. She embodies her personal mantra of make your life extraordinary. I don't know about you, Kelly, but my key takeaway, you know, her idea of financial wellness, I know we talk about it a lot, but this idea around funded contentment that one of her colleagues uh, suggests, what it's really about is ensuring that you have enough knowledge to feel like you're in control of your life. I loved that. My key takeaway, I think, was the idea of prioritizing learning and personal growth. It's definitely another one of those things that we believe in, and it's amazing to see it in action. You can hear more of Ethan on the 50 Faces podcast. Kelly and I want to thank those of you who have turned in during our inaugural year of Nourishing Your Worth. Our next episode will resume the first week of January where we will discuss making a plan for your financial selfies as you're gathering with your friends and putting together your vision boards and reflect upon the importance of making your future selfie to help guide you through what is projected to be a challenging financial year ahead. We wish everyone a very happy holiday and hope you enjoy your time with your tribe. Until next time, continue to nourish your worth. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. The creators of Nurse Your Worth are the authors of Financial Wellness and are owners and officers of 20 Concierge Wealth Management, an investment advisor licensed by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Anything contained in this podcast should not be relied upon as investment or tax advice. You should be one of those who get their money right.